Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, well, our past week will certainly be remembered as a historic one. We revisit the subject of journalism history. Our guests are professors Terry Finneman from the University of Kansas and Nick Hershen from William Patterson University in New Jersey. They come from the History Division of the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication. The History Division is one of about 20 divisions within the AEJMC. Its members conduct research into a variety of topics related to journalism, strategic communication, and the role of media in society. Member work can be seen in a journalism history publication and is discussed on the Journalism History Podcast, which is a great listen. Terry's expertise is in the coverage of first ladies and women in politics. Nick is a sports media historian. All right, so first, Terry, let's explain. Tell us a little bit more about the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication kind of in a, in a broader sense. Well, it's really an opportunity for journalism professors across the nation to be able to come together and share their research and talk about what are the most important questions of our time as it relates to journalism and strategic communication. We have our annual conference that always has huge, huge turnout. It's a great way to network and to build new relationships for creating new research. And what's the difference between your group and another group that we had on uh, earlier, the AJHA? Well, AEJMC is comprised of journalism professors who study a lot of different things. As you mentioned, there's a lot of different divisions. There's law and newspaper and and TV and uh, the Commission on the Status of Women. So we have a history division within that large organization that houses a lot of our special interest groups. Uh, AJHA is specifically a conference and an organization just for media historians. A lot of our membership is the same across the two groups. And I've noticed that you've had members of that group in leadership on your your podcast. And let's talk about the different ways to get involved in the uh, history division of your group. Explain to us, I understand, and both of you can can discuss this, explain to us the way that your division is kind of a, a separate group and the things that you can do to be involved in it. Yeah, so I mean, first of all, you have to be a member of AEJ, and then from there you can join the history division. I am just coming off my time as uh, part of the leadership chain. I was the chair last year, and a lot of my initiatives focused on getting a lot more people active in the division, reaching a much younger audience, and getting new media historians geared for the future. Uh, Hence why we have the podcast, we have a very active Facebook group, we have a lot more ongoing communication throughout the year. So we feel like more of a community and not just a group of people who meet once a year. We have started more undergraduate student competitions to get more of our students engaged with journalism history. And so I've kind of, so to speak, been targeting the youth vote, I guess you may call it, (laughs) um, and trying to position millennials and Generation Z to take an engaged approach to journalism history and why it matters. I would just say that it's a very nurturing, welcoming group. Um, I know that when I became a PhD student in 2013 and I was a former journalist, I didn't know anything at all about academia, writing for a scholarly audience. Uh, And I found that it was a very friendly group of historians who thought they wanted to cultivate um, young people into scholars. And uh, we believe that history is still very relevant today. So the initiatives that Terry has done, like starting the podcast, Uh, is a way of reaching out to people in a digital platform that appeals to young and old alike. 
All right. So uh, explain your podcast. It's uh, it's been around there for a few years. Uh, it's an entertaining, educational, just very uh, diverse group of topics that you've had on uh, your shows. And uh, explain how you kind of came to formulate it, the importance of it, and what you seek to do with it. Well, those of us who are involved with the show are former journalists. And one of the things that I struggled with moving from journalism to academia is the difference in population of who reads what I do. <laughs> it was very frustrating to me as an academic to reach such a limited audience when I have spent my career trying to reach out to educate and entertain a broad audience. And the podcast is a really great way to do that. I have also long criticized the disconnect between academia and the industry and the general public in general. And so I think this is really trying to cross that barrier to show that what we do matters and is interesting and does have an impact on everyday people, especially in the time that we're in right now where we're seeing the lack of history education that people have in general. And I do a lot of criticism because I study women's history. I do a lot of criticism of K-12 history textbooks and how much is left out. And that's really the whole focus of our show, as you mentioned, is that we're ripping out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. And really, we focus a lot on the ones you were never told in the first place that provide a much more accurate and complex picture of history than the the one-dimensional version that most people know. One of the things that your podcast does too, and Nick, maybe you can speak to this, is makes the information accessible to people. Like the topics that you talk about, uh, they may be academic in nature, but you speak about them kind of in a more person-to-person -person kind of sense and how this might impact you. And hey, here's a cool story. And who would have thought this? Nick, can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that speaks to the background that the hosts have as journalists, right? Like Terry was saying, we're used to writing for mass audiences. I was a reporter for the New York Daily News for six years, trying to reach an audience of 500,000 or more people. Then you go to write for a scholarly journal, and we spend so much time. You may talk about years on the same research project, and then it finally gets to publication and maybe is read by a handful of people. And that can be very disheartening. We want to see that the stories that we're telling are reaching mass audiences. And I think most of our members are writing in a very narrative style that would appeal to a mass audience. It's not your traditional APA citation, dull academic writing. These are really interesting stories from throughout history that, as Terry was saying, has never been told before. Um, so we also have expertise as interviewers, right? If we're former journalists, we know how to ask the right questions to prepare. Um, so I think all of that makes it a very fun conversation. I think also just a lot of our members really like each other, are genuinely curious, interested in each other's research. So it makes for an authentic conversation that hopefully appeals to our listeners. Before we get into the topics that are your expertise, I want to acknowledge the topics that, are some, uh, that have been up for some of your guests. I'm talking about things like making a topical. You did a show about newspapers and ghosts for Halloween. One of your early shows was on Abe Lincoln. You've done shows on community radio. You had a recent episode about the New York uh, newspaper tabloids that I uh, particularly liked. You mentioned you wrote for the New York Daily News. I grew up reading the New York Daily News from age six. So uh, I particularly enjoyed that. For each of you, can you uh, pick one topic that you've learned about through either your publication or your podcast that has been particularly enlightening for you in the last year? Uh, I, I'll go first and give Terry some time to think about this because we probably have so many favorite shows, each of us, that it's tough to come up with one. Um, I mean, I don't know, it, it is difficult. I interviewed an author who wrote a book about the history of newsboys 
And <laughs> it's a topic that unless you've seen Newsies, uh, you probably don't know too much about, uh, but he was discussing, and his name is Vince DiGirolamo, um, but he wrote this massive book that I have right on my shelf about the history of newsboys and that there were so many famous people throughout American history who started as newsboys that became politicians or entertainers and what that meant for marketing the news, you know, hawking it on the street, extra, extra, read all about it, but going really into depth about the lives of these people because they come from underprivileged communities. This is the only job they could get maybe if they didn't have an education, um, but just going to how that has changed over the years. And even today, still, there are people, maybe not newsboys the way it traditionally has been depicted, but there's still people who hawk newspapers on the streets. Uh, and I just thought that's a topic I never really thought deeply about until I read that book. And it's like, wow, someone could write like, you know, 500 pages just about the history of newsboys <laughs> in America. I have a lot of favorite shows. Uh, I guess the one that I will mention is our upcoming holiday episode. Uh, we've decided to make that a tradition every year. So this episode is already out. Uh, it's taking a look at the historical context of Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. And we've decided to redrop that episode every Christmas, just like most newspapers rerun that editorial every Christmas uh, as part of our holiday tradition. And it's one of those stories that a lot of people have kind of a basic understanding of what happened, but I really love that show because we dig again further into it and go a little bit more into the complexity of just how fascinating and, and adorable that topic actually is. So that show will drop again. It's already live if you want to, you know, can't wait and want to listen to it. Our Yes, Virginia, there's the Santa Claus show, but it will redrop in mid-December. One of the things that I like to say about the other thing that I am involved in baseball statistics is that I try to make them cool, interesting, and fun. And I think you just articulated, both of you, Newsboys and Yes, Virginia, that journalism history can be cool, interesting, and fun. And I want to speak to your specific interests before, I, and I do want to talk about some other topics related to teaching journalism. Uh, but first, topics that are of particular importance to you. Terry, I know that your primary interest is how the media covers first ladies. Why is this particularly important to you? Yeah, so my emphasis is press coverage of both women politicians and first ladies. Uh, there are a number of reasons. I'm very much influenced by my grandmother who I grew up, she loved Jackie Kennedy and, and Eleanor Roosevelt and I was very, very close with her. And so that had a significant impact on me. I was also a political reporter. And so I have a vested interest in seeing how we as political reporters can improve our coverage. And there are significant problems that remain today with how women are covered in the media. So my book is Press Portrayals of Women Politicians, 1870s to the 2000s. And I take a look at how historically dating back to 1872 with the first woman to run for president, which is a whole nother topic, right? Because most people have no idea that Victoria Woodhull ran for president in 1872 and they've never heard of her because again, it all depends who writes history textbooks and who's included and who's excluded. And so with women in particular in women's history, so much of women's history has been left out and it is so complicated and complex. As far as first ladies in particular, they have so many fascinating stories as well. So one of our latest shows that came out examined Florence Harding, who when I talk to my students, they know absolutely nothing about her. The general public may vaguely know that she supposedly poisoned her husband. She did <laughs> not, she did not. Um, but she was a savvy, savvy businesswoman who, who took a newspaper and developed an amazing circulation system and made this newspaper um, really, really successful. And so study, these women are, are so one-dimensional in our history, often focused 
on their fashion, on their appearance, on you know their efforts with children. But these are complex women who make a significant difference in our country through the initiatives, through their access of power to the president. Some of our first ladies, of course, have been very politically powerful. Um, so understanding their impact on the country is as significant as the president's. The Warren and Florence Harding episodes in particular uh, fit under the definition of ripping up the history textbook because after listening to it, I knew Warren Harding as a corrupt president. And this gave me a essentially a completely different picture of him with, uh, to go with uh, what I had previously learned. Um, Nick, um, your interests are in sports media. Why is this a personal passion for you? Well, I guess similar to Terry talking about when she was growing up, talking about her grandmother, for me, growing up in New York City, I became a big fan of the New York Mets baseball and the New York Islanders. I have an Islanders jersey behind me right now. And I just love the passion of the fan base. I loved how people from an eclectic town like New York, you know, again, ages, genders, ethnicities all come together to root for these sports teams and you're high-fiving strangers when the team scores a goal or hits a home run or something. And I want to get more into the background of how those teams are covered. Um, and so it's a great way of applying some of the interviewing skills that I developed as a reporter that I learned in journalism school uh, to doing oral histories with people who lived history and uh, have never maybe put that down anywhere. I'm big on um, the phrase I always quote from my dissertation. It's an African proverb I put in my dissertation. Every old man that dies is a library that burns. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's very powerful imagery. Um, and I always kind of look around at everybody and think, what are the stories that they have? What experiences were they a part of that they're the only one? It's only in their memory. They never wrote it down. They never pass along. I could be the person to kind of share that. And of course, I can go with any sort of, not just sports media history, but I like to apply it since I'm so passionate about sports media. I read, I've read two uh, papers that you've written, both of which n narrow in on specifics, but I think could be more broadly applied to a larger topic. And I'll just explain what those are. One is the power of sports talk radio to influence public opinion about something that isn't good, which you used as your example, the Nassau Coliseum, which earned a nickname of the Nassau Mausoleum from a radio station in New York. And then the other political candidates and their relationships to successful teams, uh, which you use the example of John Lindsay, the mayor of New York, and the 1969 New York Mets. But that, I feel, could be extracted even more broadly. Just briefly, uh, can you explain to us uh, what you were trying to do with those two, two topics that you, uh, that you wrote about? Sure. Well, the sports radio piece was actually the first academic journal article I'd ever written, ever got published. I did that in 2013, 2014. Uh, and I grew up in New York City listening to WFAN 660, the world's first all sports radio station. And they had these larger than life hosts, Don Imus in the morning, who is nationally known. And then during the afternoon drive, Mike Francesa and Chris Russo, Mad Dog, Mike and the Mad Dog. And uh, then in the evening, Steve Summers. And they would mock Nassau Coliseum, which for me growing up, was a place that I had a lot of positive memories going to, that's where the New York Islanders hockey team plays. And uh, when you hear that sort of stuff, and then um, when I was in college, I had a professor who used to be the general manager of Nassau Coliseum, so that stoked my interest. Anyhow, uh, I, it sort of led to these bigger questions, as you're saying, about the public opinion leaders in our society. And somebody who has never gone to Nassau Coliseum, but is listening to Don Imus as he's 
doing his shock jock deal and exploding NASA Coliseum and saying, oh, it's such a dump. And then he presses a button and it's like a nuclear bomb is falling on the building. It's something that we kind of want to look more closely at because then it expands to, these are the same people telling you who to vote for and what yep. other sorts of decisions to make in your daily lives. And then to connect that to John Lindsay. So growing up as a Mets fan, I'd always heard this story about in 1969, John Lindsay was running for re-election as mayor of New York City, but he was very unpopular. And one of the things that he latched onto was the New York Mets were this underdog team that had never won in their brief history. And now seven years in as a expansion franchise, they're on the cusp of a World Series, the Miracle Mets, and Lindsay starts to appear with them at events and uh, reads a poem about them and does all these things to kind of link up with the Mets players. And uh, that also had a very interesting history of he's maybe, you know, the one that I focused on in that piece. But then in doing research about who else in this period was trying to align their political career to athletes and that there was an Athletes for Nixon organization. Who would have thought Jackie Robinson yep. supporting Richard Nixon for president? Um, and, you know, so there were a lot of other kind of connections there. And we still see it today with, you know, presidential candidates appealing for athletes to get to the working man, right? It's the idea of the working class supports the athletes. They care more about the local sports team, but they can lend that credibility to the politician. It's amazing how you can take something that's small and make it into to something bigger like that. And that, that creates a segue for us, for, for both of you, uh, to a question that I had uh, that I wanted to make sure to ask. What are the biggest untruths that get spread in journalism history? Oh, well, I mean, the biggest one that comes to mind, of course, is that newspapers caused uh, the Spanish-American War. That's, that's the most prevalent myth that's out there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, the one that comes to mind for me, since we're not too far after Halloween here, is the War of the Worlds broadcast. And the <laughs> idea that, that generated a ton of panic around the world, around the country. And in reality, it was maybe like an article or two that mentioned something initially. And then that became like the narrative that we've all heard of. Like Orson Welles said that aliens were invading on the radio and everybody went nuts. And in reality, there, if you look back at the archival information, there's very little evidence of that. Are there any contemporary things that still are getting spread that you're trying to, I guess, fend off when you teach? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of narratives about the 2016 presidential election and how off were polls or were they within the margin of error and that sort of stuff that's probably going to come up again in 2020. I think that there's obviously all these ideas that the media is completely liberally biased. And even though there is maybe some evidence of that in pockets, that it's not as nearly as widespread as people make it out to be. Um, and it's obviously, I don't know how Terry feels about it. It's kind of tough to bring this up in classes. You don't know how different people feel. People have very fierce opinions and emotions about it. But I feel those are things that are worth contesting. Yeah, I mean, with my field of research in particular, we continue to have problematic coverage of women in politics as recently as Kamala Harris um, and some of those myths about, about women in our, in our place and our role in society that continue to perpetuate and cause issues. What are some of the challenges that each of you face in teaching these days, uh, in trying to teach journalism to students and trying to teach journalism history to students? Well, as, as I was telling my students yesterday, uh, the biggest challenge with journalism history is that we've got almost 400 years worth to cover in 16 weeks. Uh, and so it's very difficult to decide what to focus on. I ended up spending a lot of time this year focusing on the very early years of journalism 
more so than more recent times, even though I know that students really want to learn about big events in the 1900s, but we've seen so much of the early days of journalism coming back to, I don't want to say haunt us now, that's, that's not right, the right phrasing, but the influence of that. So for example, the business model that we established during the penny press era in the 1830s, right, that journalism should be cheap and provided quickly and easily to the masses. Well, we're now seeing a problem with that because advertising is dropping off and we're having to see foundational changes in our business models and needing to think more about donations and charging more for, for subscriptions. And so by having these conversations about how we're working under a business model still from the 1800s. We're using definitions of news values that were established in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Those implications of history are coming to bear now. And so that's why I've spent so much time focused on more, more dated journalism history, even though I know what students most want to hear about tend to be, you know, World War II and the Kennedys. And, and we'll certainly touch on that because that's important, but we haven't been able to go into as much depth as it. And so that is like the fundamental issue that I've always had as a journalism professor is that when you add it all up in a semester, I spend like 40 hours giving instruction to students. That's one work week, right? which is very little when you think about it. I mean, really, you, you should have like a month-long seminar <laughs> meet every day for eight hours a day to tell students everything you want them to know. And so time, time is very difficult. I think about what we've been talking about, the common narratives that exist about different news events and journalists, and it's hard to really get into much depth on those and get to the nuance so you end up having to cover just the hits, right? It's sort of like, it, depending, I mean, I know that we try to do a lot more than that, uh, but you sort of have to cover, okay, William Randolph Hearst versus Joseph Pulitzer, and okay, like Terry saying, the JFK assassination, you, all these kind of key moments. And then it's how do you wedge in those other people and events that you think are really important and kind of attack the common narrative uh, because students, some students don't even know the common narrative first. So first you may have to tell them or make the decision. Do I tell them like most people think War of the Worlds caused all this panic? But wait, don't believe that because here's the actual thing that happened. So it's a lot to kind of um, show and to, I guess, impart upon them the idea that history does matter and is still relevant and has set into motion so many things that we still see playing out. And I suppose with what you're both uh, talking about, that's where podcasts help. Sure. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I think podcasts, you know, as a digital platform is a great way to appeal to students who might be living there and um, maybe are more audio learners than yep. necessarily a visual learner. You can learn certainly while you're doing uh, other things, uh, which is what I think makes them handy as well. All right. A couple more questions just to wrap things up. What advice for each of you do you have for young journalists? If you were going, and I realized that you could do 40 hours of advice, but if you were going to sum it up in... Uh, maybe it's it's a tip related. To, let's make it let's let's make it a little more specific. What advice would you have for a young journalist who is looking to create content such as a podcast in order to broaden their work experience and broaden their exposure to to an audience? Oh, I have a whole lecture on this as well. <laughs> <laughs> so as you know yourself, since yep. you have your own podcast, right? Yep. Uh, when I tell students who are interested in starting a podcast, one of the things that we cover is you need to really focus carefully on what your mission is, what is the point of your show, 
who is your audience, what is your budget, what is your publication timeline? Because we know that there are now over a million, maybe it's by now it's closer to two million podcasts that exist. However, an enormous chunk of them only go for a couple of episodes and then they stop production, right? So that's not nearly the number of podcasts that are actually ongoing business endeavors, so to speak. And so needing to think carefully about having a business plan, thinking out three months of content, is your idea something that you have the time to do? Is it something that you have enough ideas to keep it going? And so that kind of ties back to, you know, them as journalists in general is, is we need to be thinking more about the business side as journalists, um, but, but really most importantly, we need to be thinking about accuracy and verification because that is the foundational field, uh, uh, aspect of our field. And if we don't restore public confidence in that, we're going to continue to have the issues that we do. And so the same thing really goes with podcasting, right? You don't just want to be putting crap out there for people to listen to. You <laughs> think really carefully about what kind of content you're creating and that it matters and that it's not feeding more into the misinformation circus that we currently have. Always thinking about our audiences, our listeners. Uh, and I always recommend students kind of stay true to their own news habits. You know, if you're unable to read a 600 word story if you feel you don't have the time or you're bored by it like well then when you're writing an article what can you do to engage the reader because you've just set the standard you've said ah there's too many other things on my phone there's too many things to do what is the podcast that will get people to listen that you know even if you're going on for 30 minutes 40 minutes whatever so you just be honest and maybe solicit i think maybe sometimes as journalists we tend to think too much like we know what people want and maybe asking more questions, you know, doing surveys, we probably would all be well served kind of doing polling and just kind of determining, you know, based on feedback we get, uh, what kind of podcasts are doing well and, and so forth. All right, and uh, to wrap things up, we always do the, the pay it forward question. Uh, pick another journalism organization. What organization would you like to salute? Uh, well, for me, I could say the Society of Professional Journalists. Mm -hmm. I'm a longtime member of that. I joined when I was a reporter. I founded a student chapter that we have here at William Patterson University, WPSBJ. Uh, and I think it's just a, a great organization to connect students who are the journalists of tomorrow with the journalists of today and of the past, you know, who've retired, create mentoring opportunities, connect them with resume writing workshops, job interview, mock, you know, uh, demonstrations there. So there's a lot of uh, great potential for people interested in society professional journalists. I'm going to give a shout out to the state newspaper associations across the country and how much work that they do on behalf of the not only newspapers, but of the general public. Uh, they are so critical to public information, open meetings, open records, lobbying legislatures to either make more information open or to make sure it doesn't become closed. Uh, with the pandemic and all the work that they have been doing to try to keep newspapers open and alive and figuring out new ways to do things, the executive directors of the state newspaper associations across the country are just, all the ones I know, are just fantastic, friendly people who really, really care about the future of journalism and don't get nearly enough credit. I like that. That's, this is a good way to, to wrap things up. Uh, Terry Finneman, Nick Hirschen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told.
I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. At the end of each episode of the Journalism History Podcast, the hosts ask their guests to tell them why journalism history matters. Journalism history matters just like any history matters, because everything is connected. We need to know what happened in the past because it has an impact on what happens in the present and what happens in the future. And we can make more informed decisions by having an understanding of what happened before us. Also, as I noted, journalism history is cool, interesting, and fun. To learn more about the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication, go to their website at www.aejmc.org. There's something there for everyone. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole. Dr. Cole taught journalism for more than 30 years at Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, and inspired hundreds of future journalists. One of the things that I remember about Dr. Cole's press history class is that you had free choice on what you wanted to do your class papers on, as long as you were passionate about the subject. He would be just as happy if you wrote about the history of women in media as he would if you wrote about the time in the 1990s that the New York Mets conducted a media boycott. For what it's worth, I chose the latter. Thanks, Dr. Cole. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. If you're interested in following along with us, follow us on Twitter at Journalism Salute, S-A-L-U-T. There are more episodes to come. Thank you for tuning in.